there's, there's been a theme I've noticed in some of the sermons lately, and it's been on my heart as well, and that is uh, the, the counting of the cost for following Christ and the, the, the heart of the gospel message. So if you'll turn with me to Luke's gospel, I'd like to read a portion of, a, of chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. I'd like to begin with the 15th verse. The context of this is uh, Jesus had been invited to a supper and he had had some teaching already on uh, prominence of men at these banquets and um, the idea that the humble will be exalted and the proud will be abased. And as he's talking about this in the context of the banquet, one of those that was sitting there says in verse uh, 15, and when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper, and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. And there were great multitudes with him. And he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king? going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand. Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So, likewise, 
whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. I've read to the end of the chapter. Let's kneel for prayer. A gracious and loving Father in heaven, we have come into what is called a house of prayer, a house of worship, a place where we can gather together to see each other's faces, to fellowship, but more so to see your face, O Lord, in the word, in your gospel message, As Jesus told Philip, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And Lord, there are many that have seen Jesus not in the flesh when he was on this earth, but in the gospel message. He's that word that was from the beginning, that was with God, and that was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. O Lord, we pray that we may feel your presence this morning. That we may see your glory in your word. And that your word, the logos, the reason the rationale, the gospel of God would penetrate into each and every heart, especially those that do not yet know thee. Because if they have not seen Jesus, they have not seen the Father. Whoever doesn't eat his flesh and drink his blood has no part with him and cannot see the Father. Oh Lord, we pray that hearts would be open. We pray that in the stillness of this morning hour that they would know that thou art God as the psalmist wrote and that they would examine themselves in their heart What is the meaning for their lives? And what is the meaning for our lives as believers? Father in heaven, we have witnessed once again as Vlada went the way of all flesh, we too will face that moment where we will go the way of all flesh. From dust we have come and dust to dust we will return. 
And what have we left behind? What are we looking forward to after we enter the grave? What kind of an eternity are we expecting? Father, I pray, we pray, as a church, that everyone in this room and everyone within hearing of the message this morning would consider their lives and firstly agree that we are like the grass that is hewn down in the morning and it withers by night. The flower fades and dies. And what have we to say? What hope do we have? Oh Lord, we pray this is not just another religious worship service to some. That we've come, we feel good about coming. But rather that when we leave, that our hearts will be touched and stirred. And that we don't just have a religious experience, but we have a relationship of experiencing the presence of the living God. Father in heaven, we pray for those that could not be here, whether on, online or even in the flesh. And you would be with each and every one of them. We have many that are sickly, that are aged, that are shut in, that are suffering. We pray that you'd be with them. We have many, Lord. And we pray that you would comfort them and strengthen them in their sorrow, in their grief, in their loneliness, in their illness. Be with each and every one of them, Lord. Lord, we pray for the little flock in Toronto, that you would be our chief shepherd and that we would be obedient sheep and follow. That we could, as your word says, as the apostle Peter says, that we would have a fervent love for the brethren because we are not saved on our own. We are not individuals. And we live in an island. But we live together as a body of Christ. And that we have responsibilities and accountability one to each other. Because that's how you've designed and formed the church and purchased it with your own precious blood. Oh Lord, help us to have our hope in you despite the circumstances of the world, despite all the threats, because throughout history there's always been some form of crisis or another. And those that place their faith and trust in you were victorious. Yea, this is the victory over the world, even our faith, as the Apostle John writes. So please be with us. Please watch over us and help us to, to follow your leading and guiding. We pray for our dear brother as you would expound your word, giving grace upon his lips.
and open hearts to all to receive that word in good ground that it may bring forth fruit to your honor and glory, some 30, some 60, and some 100-fold. Lord, let's not forget all your children throughout this world that are being persecuted this very day, churches burned, people, your people being killed, churches hiding underground for the sake of their own lives, but not giving up your word, not giving up the defense of the gospel. Be with them, comfort them, strengthen them. For as we have read this morning, we are the salt of the earth. And if the salt has lost its savour, it's not fit but for the dunghill. Lord, may your name be praised as the word says, every knee shall bow, whether in heaven or under the earth, wherever it may be, every knee of every creature shall bow to Jesus Christ and confess him as Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this we want to do this morning as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to reread the verses that we sang this morning. Sometimes through familiarity puts kind of a, a gloss over it and we don't pay attention to what the words are really saying. Why should crosses ever grieve me? Christ is near. What can here, heir of him, deprive me? Who can rob me of the heaven that God's Son for mine own to my faith hath given? Weak was I and empty-handed when on Earth at my birth, my first breath was granted. Helpless, too, when death o'ertakes me, shall I go from life's woe when my breath forsakes me. Wealth nor health, soul, body, living are my own. God alone, all to me is giving. Must I then his own restore him, though bereft of each gift, Still shall I adore him. One of the things that's been impressed on me, and partially it's from listening to some messages that I had heard a, probably a couple of years ago now, and then re-listened to recently, and that's this. The gospel is scandalous. Step back for a moment from everything you know about the gospel and consider its demands on you and what Christ said. Why should anyone believe the gospel? In fact, I'm convinced that no one can believe the gospel without the grace of God already working. That's, it's, it's the things that the gospel demands of you are repulsive and not even just under the surface, on its face. Did you listen to what Christ was saying to those around him? 
Did you listen to the hard words that he spoke? There are two deaths that stand out in my mind during this past week. One I only learned of a few minutes ago. Vlado, who used to sit back in that bench back there, giant of a man. He died and was buried with a small group around him. A notable justice in the United States Supreme Court recently also died and was placed in state, the first woman to be done so, and acclamations poured in from all over, but they both are dead. Their life here is up, and both will face a higher judge than, than any Supreme Court Justice of the United States of America. Why is that important? Because in order to face the truth of what the gospel says about you, you must face the truth about what is true about yourself. Namely, that you had a beginning and you will have an end. On that, now we can begin to discuss the gospel. Christ asks you something scandalous, something seemingly impossible. Give up everything that you have in front of you right now and trade it for something to come that you haven't seen. The skeptic will say, ridiculous. Why on earth would I do that? Do you believe you will die? We all know this. But there is something inside of us that rebels against that very notion. We all know we will one day face the same end, the end of all flesh, as, as the Bible refers to it. But somehow, we just can't quite believe that about us. Have you found that to be true? I have when I... I you know, there's... there's the idea of my own death, though I understand it, is something that just seems tinged with unreality. There's something in the very core of my being that says, no, that cannot be the end. It must go on somehow from here. You could ascribe that to some kind of self-preservation instinct. But then you face another problem, which is why does man have this and no one else does. We watched nature documentaries at our house, and we just watched another one a couple nights ago, part of it, chased between a young caribou and an arctic wolf. And it was interesting to see how that young caribou, caribou at the end of the chase just seemed to sort of sit down and give up, and that was it. He realized the end, and he was shortly to become a meal, and life would go on for the rest of the caribou. So what is it about us that this troubles us, this bothers us, our own ending, the idea of unfinishedness? You know, the, the, the quote, Ruth Gator, uh, Bader Ginsburg's uh, 
supposedly last words, that she did not want her seat on the Supreme Court to be filled until the next president would appoint it, with the hopes, of course, that the next president will be one that's more to her liking. Now, I'm not here to comment on politics. I really, I, to me, it's, 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 it's all pretty ridiculous when you consider eternal things. But to think on your deathbed, when you are facing your own end, what, what do you care about those other things? Isn't your own state of greater importance? Listen to the comment that touched off this discourse, and then maybe we can spend a little bit of time looking at what, what the Lord was really, I believe, pushing at and hinting at and what we all need to consider today. And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And I think that comment was probably a bit off the cuff. It was a bit pie in the sky by and by is the modern American, or uh, American colloquialism anyway, that in the end everything's going to work out and we'll have a good experience after this life's done. We don't really want to face death, but, you know, if death overtakes us, like it all will eventually, well, there's going to be something better. He's gone to a better place. Have you heard that before? He's gone to a better place. The next question, of course, is how do you know? How do you know? And the next question that begs to answer is, how do you decide if it's a better place or a worse place? Because I bet you they wouldn't say the same thing about horrible people like Hitler. They wouldn't say of Hitler after his passing, well, he's gone to a better place. The statement is on its face ridiculous. It has no basis in anything for that person. We have this idea, you know, there's an old gospel song that's got a, a kernel of truth in it, and it's, the title of it is, Everyone Wants to Get to Heaven, But Nobody Wants to Die. And I think some of that was maybe into this, in this comment that this man was making, because Christ puts on the table some really hard teachings that I will say you will not be able to accept without humility, and that is the precursor to the operation of the grace of God in you. I'm laying that down right now. The skeptic can walk away from what I'm going to say after this if you cannot at least go along with that conclusion. And I'm sorry if it offends you, but Christ was, uh, no, I'm not. Christ was not sorry. I should not be sorry either. Listen to what he says. He begins with a parable. He says, a certain man made a great supper and bade many, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story. Now, if you're just reading this through, you see excuses, and there have been others that have um, exegeted on these, on these excuses and said, you know, well, these, these, these excuses on their surface are ridiculous, right? But maybe you got to verse 21, and there you were a little shocked, because it says, so that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, you thought, well, wait a minute, that's, that's a bit harsh. I mean, hey, so they didn't want to come. What's the big deal? Go invite someone else. So what was the big deal about these responses? What was it about these responses that made the Lord so angry? 
God has given each one the ability to choose. But what he has not given you is the ability to hedge your bets when it comes to God. You cannot have things both ways. Look at their responses. I pray thee, have me excused. They wanted to stay on good terms with this Lord. Do you see that? The most important event in this Lord's life, perhaps, the marriage of his son, his heir, and they turned him down. You expect the relationship to continue after what you've done in rejecting my son, but not only my son, me? God does not allow you to hedge your bets. You cannot have the, life, the best life here and now and expect a wonderful life in heaven to come. It does not work that way. It's either all or nothing. That's the scandal of the gospel. To the Jew, it made it particularly odious. He says, wait a minute, you mean my entire life from conception right through till now, obeying the law, doing things in accordance with the revealed will of God, that that doesn't actually count for my salvation? I want no part of that. You're saying that that publican who has rejected our Jewish way of life and betrayed his own people can enjoy the same standing as me? Ridiculous. The scandal of the gospel is based on two things. One, the fact that you can do nothing to deserve it. These men that were here that were invited, we don't read of anything special they did to deserve this, this commendation, this special favor from the Lord. So you can do nothing to deserve it. And the second part is, in order to receive it, you must give up everything. To the Greeks, that was foolishness. That didn't seem rational. And they were right. It is not rational in the materialistic sense of the word. It does not make sense to give up the things that you can see, experience, touch, taste, whatever here in expectation of a world to come. It doesn't make sense that thousands, perhaps even millions of first century believers were not willing to put a pinch of incense on a little bit of fire and to say Caesar is a god but instead chose death. It makes no rational sense if you use this world as your paradigm. So two libraries full of apologetics information will not convince you. Let's continue with the parables that Jesus taught. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife, they're like, okay, well, yeah, but what about the children? What about the children? And children, and brethren, 
and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Wait, what? How does that work? It requires a total commitment. God does not allow you to hold anything back. If you want to taste the goodness of God, the full goodness of God, because whatever God does is, is fullness to, its, to, its, to infinity. It's, it, there is no bound to it. If you want to taste that kind of fullness, you need to give up what little you're hanging on to here. The knowledge that drives that is you can't keep it anyway. You can hold as tightly as you like to things here, and when you die, it will be taken from you, and someone else will have it. It makes no difference at all. Your wishes will not necessarily be respected, and what's further, it won't really matter to you. You will be facing bigger things. Even among the atheists, there is some kind of an understanding that there must be more, that there, is, there, are, there are higher things like the appreciation of beauty and all of these things. Uh, there's, there's something uh, to be said for uh, those that will come after and things that go on and things that are transcendent. And of course the question becomes why? Why does that matter? If this is it, why does that matter? So when we preach the gospel, it is indeed the foolishness of preaching. Because if you will look at it on its face and you will view it as a carnal man would, you will reject it. It will make no sense to you. In fact, it will be offensive to you and it will even be offensive when other people accept it, as can be witnessed by the diatribes of the atheists. It's not enough to say, well, hey, you know what? Knock yourself out, pal. You like it? Go with it. No, in fact, they get upset that not only other people believe these things, but then that they teach their children these things. They call it child abuse. You know, in the words of the street, why the hatred, brah? You know, like, what's, what's the big deal? What, why, why are you so upset? You know, isn't this about freedom of choice and tolerance? No, this is the scandal of the gospel. God has given you choice, and he's asked you to use it, but he will not let you hedge your bets. As you've heard me say before, you can ignore reality, but you cannot ignore the consequences of ignoring reality. God will let you ignore reality if you choose, but you don't get to choose your own consequences for that. He spelled that out. He's still God. Listen to what he says in verse 27. And whosoever doth not bear his cross. Now we gloss over that now because we're so familiar with the idea of Christ and the cross. No big deal. Keep going. Wait, did you stop and think when he said this? He wasn't hanging on the cross when he said these words. The cross was a Roman form of execution, not a Jewish one. He was speaking to the Jewish people. Why the cross? And why take up the cross? Why not be nailed to the cross, say, to change the idiom? Would you like to know why? 
The answer is simple. The one who you saw walking down the street with a cross over his shoulder and a bunch of Roman soldiers behind him had lost all rights. He owned nothing. Not even his own life. No property rights, no civil rights, uh, no legal rights. The crowd could do whatever they wanted to him on the way to the cross to the point where he was going to be nailed there. And that was his destiny. Once that cross was on his shoulder, the court of appeals was closed. It was final. And now Christ says to those around him, take up your cross and follow me. Shocking. We've, we've forgotten the scandal of the gospel and what Christ demands. We try to wrap it in, in Joel Osteen type language, your best life now. What kind of a best life now does a, does a condemned man have? His life is measured in minutes, perhaps. There's nothing left for him to hang on to. It's all gone from him. The cross rules his destiny. Now you see, perhaps, why those first century believers with the cross before them would follow their Lord. They had long ago renounced the things of the world. You know, I, it kind of bothers me, and I'm sorry if this is going to offend some people, but, you know, there's, there's sometimes this thinking among people that are raised in our church circles that there's, there's, a, there's kind of a contract at work here. I go to church. My parents bring me to church. They bring me to church. I go to Sunday school. I learn the stuff that they're teaching me in Sunday school. Eventually, I move upstairs here into the sanctuary. I learn the things that they teach me up here. Somehow, in between there, that leads to conversion. Once I'm converted, I'm in. Now, the next thing is God's going to provide me with a spouse and a nice life as long as I keep a member in good standing and... Eventually, they'll bury me in this church. It doesn't work like that. There are no guarantees. You've given up everything. There is no guarantee from Christ for anything down here, except for one thing, and that's persecution. The guarantee comes in the life to come. In this world ye shall have trouble, but fear not, for I've overcome the world. That's the message of the gospel. But you know what the other fact is? You're still going to have trouble in this world without the gospel. And then one day, it all gets taken from you. What will you do with that? Ignore it? Continue like you can hang on to it forever? What about that little voice that says there must be more than this? There must be more than this. There must be more than this. Why is it that the actors in Hollywood and the, and the rich and the famous never are quite satisfied? Always need to be seeking the next billion or the next uh, experience. No one ever says, you know what, I've got more money than I could ever possibly spend through a normal lifestyle. 
I'm packing it in. I'm done. I'm going to go enjoy the rest of my time here until I die. People don't seem to do that, do they? There's always something more, something more, something more. I think that's a spiritual hunger. And I think that's a spiritual hunger that's deep inside each one of us. And it does not make rational sense outside of the pages of God's holy word. Because we were designed for more than this. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able, with ten thousand, to meet him that cometh against him, with twenty thousand? You've probably heard the term counting the cost before. And maybe you thought of it kind of like a set of scales where I put everything that I like in this world and I put it on one side of the scale and I balance it against this idea of some place up there vaguely, you know, that's going to maybe, you know, some kind of insurance policy and I go, well, I'm not sure. I don't think that's what this is talking about. That's not the type of counting the cost that the scripture is talking about here. The counting the cost means you cannot straddle between God and the world. Have you ever been on a dock trying to get into a canoe? And as the canoe and the dock diverge, you know, you got to commit one way or another, either to the dock or to the canoe. It's the same thing with God. He does not allow you to straddle. You cannot declare half war. You can't build half a tower. It's either all or nothing. That's the scandal of the gospel. Because what's the first thing that we would want to do in light of a gospel that's this harsh? We want a bargain. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. How much do I have to give you in order to avoid that unspeakable place? And you know, maybe just, lim- I don't need heaven. I don't need eternal bliss. Just like limbo or something, something in between, something that's not too bad. You know, how much do I have to give up here to get that? Isn't that the spirit of, of the age? Isn't that the spirit of humanity, really? This idea of bargaining? The Jews thought they could get away with it by tithing 10%, down to the herbs in the garden, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine leaves for me, one for God. Done. No. No. God will not brook divided loyalty. And I'm, I'm saying this to the to believer too. This is not a one-time commitment. We don't say, I've chosen to follow God back in this and this point. And now I'm done with that, and I just go on living my life, and if something unpleasant comes along, I ask, where is God? Yea, and his own life also. Do you realize that hospitals were actually invented by Christians? Did you know that? 
I didn't until this pandemic hit. Someone sent me an article that I read. Hospitals were invented by Christians, not for their own people. They were invented or created because when the epidemics came through the cities, and of course with primitive sewer systems, they spread pretty rapidly, sick people were simply shoved out into the street by their own family, left to die on their own. The Christians came along, picked up these people, and took them to a place where they could receive treatment or at least comfort, not considering their own lives. That is the super rational power of the gospel. That is the power of the gospel that transcends even rationality. Who would do these things? That's not how religions spread. Look at the history of humanity. Religions typically spread through sword and violence. An ascendant power comes up, brings their gods with them, and changes the worship in the area around them. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Those are hard words. You mean the stuff that I've worked for? The times I've been prudent? The times I've done without? The times that I've set aside a little extra, even though everyone else was saying it was okay to borrow more than I could afford? You mean that's not mine either? No. No, it's not. Not if you've chosen to follow Christ. You're a condemned man, a condemned woman. You own nothing, you have nothing, and you have no rights. They have been forfeited by the cross. But the future, the future, even as Christians, this is, you know, I heard it said once by Leonard Ravenhill, who's one of my favorite preachers. He said something, that stuck with me and it really, it really convicts me. He said, the greatest temptation to us, to Christ, he said, and to us is the same. Come down from the cross and save yourself. That's it. Hard words. But when we look around us and we see people fearful, we see people concerned about the economics, what's going to happen in the future? What's happening to the social fabric of the country? What's happening to the next generation? What's happening to global relationships? What about the possibility of a new Cold War? I think it's a calling for those who have professed to be disciples of Christ to take up the cross and to follow like condemned men and women. That's an inner attitude. It can't be enforced. It's not something that anyone in leadership here could do to you. 
It's an inner disposition. It's an inner counting of the cost. It's an inner accepting of a sentence. The world says live and learn. Try it out. Test it. And then go with it if you like it. Here again, the gospel flies in direct opposition to that. The gospel says learn and live. Take these things, do them, and you will see. Just last weekend, we had a few young men over and we were talking about some things of the gospel and and I, I have to say today, now, my faith is stronger than it's ever been, not because of some great thing that I am or my own often flawed walk. My faith is greater because I see that God is greater. My estimation of God has increased. I see how great he is in his word. I see how great he is in creation. I see how great he is in the lives of other believers. And I say, I would gladly trade the world for a God like this book describes. That's worth dying for. May the Lord add whatever is lacking. Amen. Perhaps as our next hymn, could we sing hymn number 151, but the last three verses? Hymn number 151, verses 4, 5, and 6.
brother, please lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, if we are honest with ourselves this morning, these indeed are harsh words. And once again, if we're honest with ourselves, they are utterly indisputable. If we can accept the truth and the joy of words and other parts of your word in the gospel, dear Father, then we must, by default, accept these words as well. As we rejoice in the truth of the word from cover to cover, these two we find true as well. The message may not be clear, may not be understandable, dear Father, but indeed we are beholden to them as believers. We are beholden to those as we hear all of us on our knees praying to you, dear Father. Not in vain, not in acts of piousness, dear Father, but this is the truth and it's a hard reality for many of us and especially for those outside of Christ. Yet let us give us the strength to find strength in these words. In fact, be our strength, be our patience. Be our joy, dear Father. We know that outside of this, as the brothers expounded, this all, this all passes away. This all goes away, dear Father, and there is far, far more beyond this. We're grateful for what we've heard today, dear Father, once again as we leave. Let's let not this message die at the doors of this church, of this house. We be accountable to one another and know that there's far more ahead of us than there is behind us, dear Father, far more. We're grateful once again to hear this truth, dear Father, although it's uh, to the world not the most uplifting, dear Father, but we know on the other side of this, our Lord waits for us, dear Father, with open arms if we accept his message and most of all accepts his truth. We thank you for this as we continue to pray. For those in our midst who are struggling, those who are fearful, those who are hurting, those who are nearing the end, dear Father, may messages like this strike at their heart, dear Father, and. Uh, have them turn to what's really important. We thank you for this message, dear Father. Be with us the rest of this day and this week as we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.